Bibles, uh, you could turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. We have spent the last 12 weeks studying the life of Abraham, adventures with Abraham. And uh, today we're going to, I'm just going to do one message on the life of Joseph. And interestingly enough, there's actually more space devoted in the book of Genesis to Joseph than there is to Abraham. And we're going to try to tackle this in one sermon. So uh, pray for me. Genesis chapter 37. It says in verse 2, This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17. All right, keep track of this. When all this stuff starts happening to Joseph, he's 17 years old. I can hardly remember back when I was 17. I was a senior in high school and Everything after that gets kind of foggy, but I, I was trying to think about 17 years old. He was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. The story of Joseph has four scenes. Okay, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Four scenes. But as it begins at the age of 17, I don't think Joseph realizes how some of his behavior is affecting his brothers. And having three brothers of my own and no sisters, when I read this passage, I'm thinking to myself, if he'd have done that to me, there's a part of me. I used to think his brothers were way off. And they needed to be disciplined and punished by God for the way they treated Joseph. But the more I read this, I'm like, eh. I can see how they kept on adding to their grudge list. And this is the first thing that he did that just did not set well with his brothers. He brought back a bad report on them. Now, I know how that would have gone with my brothers if they would have told my mom and dad and given a bad report on me. That would have been one strike right there. Verse 3 says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age. There's strike number two. His father favored Joseph over the other 11 brothers. Favoritism. Favoritism. As parents and grandparents who are here today, and we, we say Happy Grandparents Day to you. That's what it is today. How many grandparents do we have here? Wow, we got a bunch. I say this as a warning to parents and grandmother, grandparents. Be on your guard against favoritism. The book of Genesis gives us numerous illustrations of favoritism in the family that was 
that was passed down from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. And it led to generational dysfunction in the family. So Joseph has two strikes against him already. He's brought a bad report. And his father has made him his favorite. That's not going to play out well. All right. Here's the next one. His father made a richly ornamented robe for him. All right. To show that favoritism, his father gives him a robe and doesn't give his brothers a robe. And the playwright Andrew Lloyd Webber refers to Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. It was quite a coat just for Joseph. Now look at verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So you've got, you've got those two things going on. Bad report, favoritism. He's still got one more strike left. Verse 5. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. There's three strikes. You're out, Joseph. He actually has two dreams. They hated him after he told them his first dream. And then he went on to tell them his second dream and both dreams. I'm not going to go into what they were, the interpretation of them. But basically, the dreams were, listen, guys, one of these days, Twice, you're going to bow to me. Now, I just think about how that would have played itself out in my family. If one of my brothers, Dan, Warren, or Monty, had brought a bad report against me, if I noticed that my parents practiced favoritism against one of my other brothers and not me, which, by the way, they never did, and then... I have these dreams and one of my brothers, my brothers come up to me and say, you know, hey, guys, I just want you to know someday you guys are going to bow to me. Wow. That's pretty messed up. It's pretty messed up. There's a lot of debate as to whether Joseph should have told his brothers about his dreams or not. I don't know. I don't know if he should have done that. But as a result of these dreams that he had, verse 8 says, But his brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Well, that's even before he tells them the second dream, which is the same thing. You're going to bow down to me. They already hated him there. Then he goes on, he tells them his second dream. Look at verse 18. Of Genesis chapter 37. But they saw him in the distance. His father had sent him to. Uh, to uh, I don't want to use the word spy out. But to find out the, the condition of his brothers. And so he ends up in a place called Dothan. This is the, the brother who's already brought a bad report about his brothers. And verse 18 says. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them. They plotted to kill him. 
Wow. You talk about a dysfunctional family. You've got brothers wanting to kill a brother. Plotting to kill him. Verse 19 says, here comes that dreamer. Does that tell you what they thought about his dreams? Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Two times there, this derogatory statements that are made about his dreams. We go down to verse 23 of Genesis chapter 37. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. Isn't that interesting? The very first thing they did to Joseph when he came to them was they took that robe off of him. That that robe that in their eyes was a symbol, a sign of favoritism. They're like, that's got to go right away. First thing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. The first scene of Joseph is the pit. And that's what the King James Version calls the cistern. It calls it the pit. Joseph is in the pit at this point. Verse 28 says, So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shackles of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. All right. If you want to know this, this whole condition about his brothers, 22 years later, in Genesis chapter 42, verse 21, his brothers are in Egypt and they're talking to themselves. And they said this, We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's part of what was going on in the pit. Joseph was pleading for his life. Do you remember what they did after they threw him in the pit? Do you remember what they did? Yeah, they sat down to eat lunch. He's in the pit. He's pleading for his life. He's yelling, get me out of here. And these guys are so cold-blooded and heartless, they can eat lunch. They cared more about their meal than about their brother that day. He's in the pit. Chapter 38 says absolutely nothing about Joseph. It speaks about one of Joseph's brothers, Judah, who got into some trouble. And we're going to skip that chapter because it doesn't say anything about Joseph. And we're going to go to chapter 39. Chapter 39. From the pit. Where did Joseph go? Chapter 39, verse 1 gives us that. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Uh, very simply put, he went from the pit to Potiphar's house. That's scene two. He's in Potiphar's house. Chapter 39, verse 2 says, The Lord was with Joseph. That's a, that's a neat phrase. 
the Lord was with Joseph. In fact, it says that four times in the 39th chapter. As if the writer of Genesis is wanting us to really get a hold of that. The Lord was with Joseph. In the pit, in Potiphar's house, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in the charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had with Joseph in charge. We're going to keep keep in mind that Joseph in charge. We'll get back to that in a moment. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. You talk about simplifying life. The only thing Potiphar had to worry about with Joseph in charge is, let's see, what am I going to have for my next meal? You know, I'm just going to have to fill out my menu. That's all I got to worry about, filling out my menu for my next meal. Wow. Look at verses 7 through 10 of chapter 39. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge. There it is again. I'm in charge. He told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph placed his loyalty to God above his lust. He honored not just God, he honored his master who had put him in charge. Let me encourage you this morning, very simple lesson, do what pleases God. That's about as simple of a lesson as you could teach. But it's one of the hardest lessons to live out. Do What pleases God. I can't sin against my master. He trusts me. I can't sin against my God. I can't do that. You'll never go wrong doing what's right. You'll never go wrong doing what's right. Now, I'm not saying doing what's right is always going to make things easy for you. Or convenient. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Sometimes doing what's right will get you into tough, tough times. But Joseph, what a tremendous lesson. Do what pleases God. Do what pleases God. 
Well, we know from this, to make a long story short, that Potiphar charged Joseph with sexual abuse, possibly rape, put him in prison. Put him in prison. We've gone from the pit to Potiphar's house. Thirdly, we find him now in the prison. Chapter 39, beginning at verse 20. Chapter 39, verse 20. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, here it is again for the fourth time, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. How many of you think that that God showed him kindness and granted him favor because Joseph pleased God? Joseph did the right thing. He did the right thing. Chapter 40, verse 15. I want to show you a verse. While Joseph is in the prison, we have the story of the baker and the cupbearer, which I'm going to get to in just a second. But chapter 40, verse 15 is a very interesting verse. Joseph is kind of telling the butler... The, the cupbearer, the uh, baker, his story. And he says, For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. If you want to know what Joseph thought about his condition, right there it is. All this stuff that's happening to me, all this mistreatment that I have endured, I want you to know, I really don't deserve this. I'm innocent. I don't deserve this. In the prison, chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended them. All right. We don't know how the baker and the cupbearer offended the king. We, we don't know what they did. It must have been something pretty serious. They end up in prison. The same place where Joseph is. The baker and the chief cupbearer, they both have dreams one night. And Joseph, the next morning, he looks at these two men and he says, why is your face so sad? He could just tell by looking at them that something wasn't right. We've all done that. We've all looked into people's faces and we knew instantly that something wasn't right with them. That's what happened here. And they both went on to tell him that they had had dreams. And Joseph interpreted their dreams for him. The dream of the baker did not have a happy ending. Joseph said, in three days, Pharaoh is going to hang you. The dream of the cupbearer, it did have a happy ending. 
He told the cupbearer, in three days, you're going to be restored back to your job. In three days. Well, everything happened just like Joseph had, had told them. The baker was hung. The chief cupbearer was restored back to his official position as a cupbearer. And while all this was going on, Joseph told the cupbearer, when you stand before Pharaoh, when you're returned back to your job, remember me. Remember me. Chapter 40, verse 23 says, The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Anybody ever forget the good you've done for him? It's as if it never happened. But I want to show you something because it's a very important transition here between verse 23 of chapter 40 and verse 1 of chapter 41. When two full years had passed. Wait a minute. Joseph has been forgotten by the cupbearer for two. What's the word that's used there? Full. Joseph would have said long years. That cupbearer forgot about him. Until. Pharaoh has a job, or excuse me, has a dream. Pharaoh has a dream. And he basically has two dreams. But the, the bottom line, the interpretation of his two dreams are basically the same. He has this dream of some fat cows. The Bible says specifically they're slick cows. I'm not sure exactly what a slick cow is. But they're fat, slick cows. And then he has uh, this, this dream of seven other cows that are skinny and starving. And those skinny cows come up and eat the seven fat cows. Well, then he has another dream where he has seven heads of grain all on one stalk. And these are big heads of grain on that stalk. And then he has some thin heads of grain, seven thin heads of grain on another stalk. And the thin heads of grain come and swallow the seven full heads of grain. Swallows them up. And Joseph says, you've had two dreams, but the interpretation for the two is the same. The seven years are, there's going to be seven years of plenty. You're going to have bumper crops over a seven-year period. But following that bumper crop period of time, you're going to have a seven years of famine after that. So what you need to do is, during the seven uh, plentiful years, you need to put back some of your crops for the seven famine and lean years. Oh. Pharaoh said, okay, well, let's see, who in our kingdom would be a wise man that we could put in charge of that? And to Joseph's credit, he didn't say me. <laughs> he could have said, hey, you're looking right at him. Right here. He didn't do any of that. And Pharaoh looked at Joseph and he says, you know, 
I don't think there's a wiser man in my kingdom than you. I'm going to put you in charge of that. Now, here's something that I I find to be very interesting. Look at chapter 41, verse 46. Chapter 41, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Whoa. How old was he when all this stuff started? 17. When he stands before Pharaoh, he is now the prime minister of Egypt. He's second in charge to Pharaoh himself. But look at all that stuff he's gone through, all that mistreatment for 13 years. And now he's, he's 30 years old? Could you imagine a president of the United States being 30 years old? You think we'd vote for somebody like that? You think we'd vote for a 30-year-old? Ah, I don't know. To be second in charge at the age of 30, to me, is remarkable. 30 years old. Pharaoh in verse 41 of chapter 41 says, So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Put him in charge. To put to be put in charge of something was not a new experience for Joseph. We've already read where Potiphar had put him in charge of his household. The prison warden had put Joseph in charge of all those who were held in the prison. He's already been in leadership positions. I want you to hear this lesson this morning. There are no experiences in life that God wastes on you. I want you to hear that. Everything God does, He does on purpose. Everything. Joseph is put in charge of these smaller responsibilities... Because God saw the whole picture and knew that one day Joseph would be prime minister of Egypt and he had to cut his teeth before he got there. He had to go through this 13-year process. God doesn't waste experiences on you and me. I love the way Max Lucado says it in his latest book, You'll Get Through This. Very good book, by the way. He says... Today's prisoner may become tomorrow's prime minister. I like that. Today's prisoner may become tomorrow's prime minister with God. Isn't that beautiful? You see, Joseph went from the pit to Potiphar's house, to the prison, and the fourth scene is the palace. The palace. Chapter 42, verse 3. And we're going to really skim through the next few chapters. Chapter 42, verse 3 says, Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. Joseph's family was back in the promised land of Canaan, but guess what? There was famine everywhere. So they left Canaan to go south to Egypt, and it was about a 250 to 300 mile trip depending on the way you went. And his family decides to go to Egypt because they've heard that Egypt has food. Nobody else has food. 
Now we're going to skip clear over to chapter 45 because chapters 42, 43, and 44 talk about the two trips that uh, Joseph's brothers made from Canaan to Egypt. That's, that's those three chapters, basically. Okay. And their interaction with Joseph, and he did some stuff to him. All right. He, he did. He, he, he's a typical brother. You know, he, read, you can read it on your own, but he, he played him over pretty good. I mean, he just did. We get to chapter, of course, I think of what I might have done to my brothers and I, I could see how he did what he did to his brothers. And it's like, okay, yeah, I, I get that. I, I get that, you know. You, you can't let him off scot-free for throwing you in a pit. You don't have to take revenge or anything, but you can play with him a little bit. You can play a few mind games on him a little bit. And that's what he did. He he played far more with their minds than he did with their bodies. I mean, he just he played with their minds. And it's a pretty amazing thing as you read those three chapters, how Joseph uh, interacted with his brothers. He hadn't seen them in over 20 years. They didn't recognize him. We get to Genesis chapter 45, verse 5. Genesis 45, 5 says... And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. I love that phrase. God sent me ahead of you. All right? That's what he told him. This is the way I've got this figured out. God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you. There it is again. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse 8. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Here's his thought. God sent me here, not you. I see God's invisible hand behind all of the circumstances of my life. It wasn't you. This was God who sent me here. Wow. I love that. And we're not told at what point in time Joseph gained this clear spiritual perspective or even why he had to suffer. We're we're not told that. We just know what his perspective is. God sent me here not you wow and now we go to chapter 50 verse 20 chapter 50 verse 20 to skip ahead his father jacob had just died at the age of 147 years old Uh, jacob and his household had spent 17 years in Egypt at this point when Jacob died. Jacob dies at 147. Joseph's brothers are terrified when their dad dies because they think to themselves, as long as dad was alive, Joseph wasn't going to do anything to us. But now that dad's dead, Joseph... He's going to seek revenge against us now. And they are terrified. 
They're talking about all this stuff among themselves. And finally, Joseph calls them in. Chapter 50, verse 20. And this is what he said to them in their fear. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. That was not the treatment they thought they were going to receive. In Joseph's explanation, we find Joseph's inspiration. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You intended to harm me, but God brought me to Egypt so that during seven years of famine, I could save the lives of many people who would have starved to death. God sent me here. God sent me here ahead of you to keep people from starving. That was God's plan. That was God's purpose. That was Joseph's perspective on how he saw the whole picture. Max Lucado in his book, you'll get through this, says, In God's hands, intended evil becomes eventual good. I like that. In God's hands, intended evil becomes eventual good. Your test, and some of you are going through some tough times right now. Some of you have been mistreated by other people. You've been mistreated. Your test can be your testimony. Your mess, like Joseph's mess, can be your message. It can be your message. Look at all the stuff that had to work together in just the perfect time. At just the right moment, his brothers threw him into the pit. At just the right moment, the Midianites came along. At just the right moment, he was sold to Potiphar. At just the right moment, Potiphar's wife falsely accused him. At just the right moment, he met the baker and the cupbearer. At just the right moment, the cupbearer remembered Joseph. At just the right moment, Pharaoh called for him. At just the right moment, Joseph was promoted to prime minister. At just the right moment, Jacob sent his sons to Egypt. At just the right moment, the brothers met Joseph. At just the right moment, Jacob's family moved to Egypt. At just the right moment, Pharaoh offered them the land of Goshen. At just the right moment, they settled there and prospered. At just the right moment, the invisible hand of God was working that whole story out. All that bad. All that evil, he was turning it into good. But that's not just Joseph's story. 2,000 years ago, there was a Friday, and Jesus Christ was hanging upon a cruel cross, a cross, the recipient of some of the worst evil the world has ever known. And the devil thought he had won on Friday. But I want you to know that Sunday morning, early in the morning, that, that stone was rolled away and Jesus came out. 
You see, the devil intended that for evil. But I want you to know God worked it out for good. Amen? That's the story of Joseph. That's the story of Jesus. But my friends, that can be your story. It can be your story too. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. He takes all that evil. He takes all that bad stuff. And He's not saying that it's all good. There's nothing good about murder. There's nothing good about rape. There's nothing good about divorce. There's nothing good about sickness. There's nothing good about any of that stuff. But God, He takes that bad, that evil, and He can work that out toward good like He did in the life of Joseph. The pit, Potiphar's house, the prison, all that stuff. And He ended up in the palace. Well, I close with this illustration. A man by the name of Sam Brown was a lieutenant. He was two years removed from West Point. He was on his first tour of duty in Afghanistan when an improvised explosive device turned his Humvee into a Molotov cocktail. He doesn't remember how he got out of the truck. He, he does remember rolling in the sand, slapping dirt on his burning face, running in circles, and finally dropping to his knees. He lifted flaming arms to the air and cried, Jesus, save me. In Sam's case, the words were more than a desperate scream. He is a devoted believer in Jesus Christ. Sam was calling on his Savior to take him home. He assumed he would die. But death did not come. His gunner did. With bullets flying around them, he helped Sam reach cover. Crouching behind a wall, Sam realized that bits of his clothing were fusing to his skin. He ordered the private to rip his gloves off the burning flesh. The soldier hesitated, then pulled. With the gloves came pieces of his hands. Brown winced at what was the first of thousands of moments of pain. When vehicles from another platoon reached them, they loaded the wounded soldier into a truck. Before Sam passed out, he caught a glimpse of his singed face in the mirror. He did not recognize himself. That was September 2008. By the time I met him, the writer of the story, three years later, he had undergone dozens of painful surgeries Dead skin had been excised and healthy skin harvested and grafted. The pain chart didn't have a number high enough to register the agony he felt. Yet in the midst of the horror, beauty walked in. Dietitian Amy Larson. Since Sam's mouth had been reduced to the size of a coin, Amy monitored his nutrition intake. He remembers the first time he saw her. Dark hair, brown eyes, nervous, cute. Look at the women. They know where this is going. They're getting excited. Nervous, cute. More important, she didn't flinch at the sight of him. After, after several weeks, he gathered the courage to ask her out. They went to a rodeo. 
The following weekend, they went to a friend's wedding. During the three-hour drive, Amy told Sam how she had noticed him months earlier when he was in ICU, covered with bandages, sedated with morphine, and attached to a breathing machine. When he regained consciousness, she stepped into his room to meet him. But there was a circle of family and doctors, so she turned and left. The two continued to see each other. Early in their relationship, Sam brought up the name Jesus Christ. Amy was not a believer. Sam's story stirred her heart for God. Sam talked to her about God's mercy and led her to Christ. Soon thereafter, they were married. And as I write these words, they are the parents of a seven-month-old boy. Sam directs a program to aid wounded soldiers. The writer goes on to say this, Far be it from me to minimize the horror of a man on fire in the Afghan desert. And who can imagine the torture of repeated surgeries and rehab? The emotional stress has taken its toll on their marriage at times. Yet Sam and Amy have come to believe this. God's math works differently than ours. I want you to think about that. God's math works differently than ours. War plus near death plus agonizing rehab equals wonderful family and hope for a bright future. In God's hand, Intended evil is eventual good. I'm going to ask the worship team to come at this point.